All right, let me read the word of the Lord uh, and then introduce myself. So, we are continuing our series on the prayers of Jesus, and we are camping down a little bit in the Lord's Prayer. So, let me go ahead and read that from Matthew 6. Uh, starting verse 9, he says, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forget our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. How you guys doing this morning? Good. So I, uh, my name is Jimmy Clifton. I am a partner here at Missio Day. I get the privilege of speaking to you this morning. Sarah, you set me up to fail. She said I was funny. Um, we'll see how that goes. You let me know after. Actually, please don't. Um, I'm also sensitive. As, yeah. I think everyone I know that's funny is also sensitive. So, um, okay, Jason. Um, so, this morning, uh, we're going to continue, like I said, the series of the prayers of Jesus. Uh, and I'm really excited. We last week looked at, uh, for, or, sorry, uh, the daily bread aspect of the Lord's Prayer. And this morning, we're going to be looking at lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. So, to start, I want to tell you about a TV show that I've seen a few episodes of um, here and there. But in doing this, I do not want to say that I condone this show. I just just want to be clear. It's a little crass at times, um, but this example is just so good that I couldn't pass it up. So just pretend like it's, you know, just out there. It's not part of this show. I won't even say the name of the show, but I will tell you it's about a couple of friends who own a bar. They live in Philadelphia. It's typically sunny there. And if you don't know what show I'm talking about, you are far holier than I am. Okay, so in this show, there's this friend group, right? Um, And this friend group across the board has an intelligence level that is fairly low. Like, that is the whole point of the show, is that these friends are just very stupid, right? And so as a result, they get into stupid situations. But they have one friend in particular named Charlie, who is actually just like particularly dumb, right? So a lot of things that he gets into, his whole character arc, is that he's just not very smart. Anyways, there's this episode called Flowers for Charlie, where a research lab is testing out an intelligence pill. And so they decide to pick out some of the like lower intelligence people that they could find, and they decide that Charlie is their perfect example. So they ask Charlie to be a part of the example, and Charlie takes the pill and is intelligence increases dramatically. And that's the whole point of this episode, is that Charlie is now smart. So he learns Mandarin in 48 hours. He starts his own research lab. Um, He develops a British accent, which is also a mark of intelligence. Um, And the episode progresses to a point where Charlie is going to present his own research, so he invites the whole gang to see his research. And then we have the unveiling of his work. So I don't know if you can see this, but he tried to create a phone to where cats could talk to spiders. Now, he also, I don't know if you can tell, spider is spelled wrong, right? So what we then realize is that Charlie was given a placebo pill. So Charlie, when he thought he was speaking Mandarin, was speaking complete gibberish, right? Um, His British accent goes away. Uh, He ends up completely ditching his work, and, and Charlie, being the sort of like laid-back guy that he is, is like, all right, I guess I'm still just Charlie, and then he just kind of leaves the lab, right? What we see in this example 
uh, from this TV show, again, that takes place in Philadelphia where it's sunny, uh, is that what you believe affects what you do, right? What we see with Charlie is he then believes that he is an intelligent person, so he spends all of his time doing research on how to get cats to talk to spiders. Now, I'm sure this isn't necessarily a new idea to you, that what you believe affects, you, affects what you do, but there's actually more and more research that is showing that the opposite is also true. So not only what we believe affects what we do, but actually what we do affects what we believe, and what we believe affects what we believe. In other words, the, def the decisions we make on what to believe at a young age can dramatically affect what we're willing to believe in the future. And this is because it takes an incredible amount of cognitive effort to reject information and change an opinion. So what does this have to do with the Lord's Prayer, right? This morning we're focusing on that last line, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I want to present to you this idea. Temptation is only tempting because it's built on believable lies. Let me say that again. Temptation is only tempting because it's built on believable lies. In other words, the enemy goes after our belief system or even confirms faulty aspects of our belief system in order to get, to get us to do things we never thought we'd do or we thought that we were done with, right? Simply put, lies attack our belief systems. Information, I don't know if you think about it like this, all information we're presented with is either true or false, right? As people who believe in absolute truth, all information we're presented is either true or false. As a result, we have to, when we're presented with information, decide if we believe it or not. So that's what we're going to talk about this, this morning. We're going to look at three major areas the enemy lies about. God, other people, and ourself. We're going to talk about some common lies in each of those areas. And then we're going to talk about what we do with those lies, how we combat them. You guys with me? All right. All right. Before I do that, though, let's pray. Lord, I pray that this morning uh, what is heard is from you and not from me. So what is from me, Lord, uh, whether it's references to a TV show or maybe some lies that are just a little bit off base and don't apply here. Let, let that be forgotten, Lord. But what is from you, Lord, let that be remembered. Let me tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth in the power of your spirit. Amen. So lies are not a new strategy for the enemy, right? From the beginning, the devil has been lying about God. So we're going to look at those lies about God in the beginning, in Genesis 3. So this is probably a pretty familiar passage for those of you who either grew up in the church or have been around some church. But Adam and Eve at this point have been created by God, and they have been living alongside God in the garden, walking with him, talking with him, just spending time with God. Now, there was one rule in the garden, right? Do not eat from the tree of life and death. So we enter the story here. Let's go ahead and look at Genesis 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, we're going to stop there. I know I have more on the screen, but we're going to stop there. That is already a lie, right? God did not say, do not eat from any tree. God has provided for Adam and Eve. What did God say? He said, don't eat from this one tree. But do you see how the enemy starts with a big lie in order to make the, his next lie 
far more believable, right? But Eve notices this. So she says, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. So then here's that first lie that I already referenced. The, the question is, did God really say, right? God did not say that is the first lie. Now, I think that this can play out in a few ways. And just so you guys know sort of the structure, I'm going to look at a lie, and then we're going to look at the, one of the main temptations from that lie, right? Like the lie is that God did not say that. And then we'll talk about, so then what are we tempted to do with that lie? So I think that this lie can play out in a few ways. I used to work in ministry at Northwestern with college students, and I would meet, uh, Northwestern brings people from all over the world um, and from a lot of different backgrounds regarding faith, uh, or lack thereof, right? And I would meet a lot of students that would ask me just like absurd, ridiculous questions about, does the Bible say this, or did God say that? Um, And those were always like, again, sort of ridiculous. Some of them Maybe God did say, some of them he did not, and so we would have to parse through that. But I'm not necessarily talking about that sort of uh, conversation this morning. What I'm talking about is more internal. Moments when you want to do something you know you shouldn't, right? And you're like, well, did God really say that I shouldn't do this, right? Did God really say that something like pornography is bad, right? And even if we know that it It's something that we shouldn't be doing. We talk ourselves into it not being that bad or it not hurting our relationship with God, right? And so what is the temptation here when we have this this lie of God didn't say that? The temptation is licentiousness. What I mean by licentiousness is that we give ourselves license to go beyond what God has intended for us, right? So God did not say that. As a result, I can do this thing that God actually did say something about. You guys with me? And so we begin to, again, grace is a great thing, right? But we begin to say, well, grace abounds, therefore I can live however I want. Or comparatively, I'm a pretty good person, you know? Therefore, I have the license to do some of these things that are outside of the bounds of God's given path in our lives. Let's go ahead. We're going to talk more about licentiousness later, so I'm going to leave that there. Let's go ahead and look at Uh, the second lie about God in Genesis 3. So we have another passage here. There's actually two lies in here that I want to hit on. So let me read this first. Continuing our story in Genesis 3, uh, the serpent says, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So you guys see what the serpent is doing now? He's not saying, did God really say that? He's saying, yeah, God said that, but God's a liar, right? He, he's saying that listening to God isn't worth it because all God's trying to do is keep us from being God. And so that leads into our first major lie here in this passage. The first one is that God is not good. Now, I don't know what wrestling with the idea of God not being good has looked like for you. But if I'm being honest, I didn't actually struggle with this idea until 2013. So I just, had just graduated college. I'd been a Christian for, I actually don't know how many years, like five years, six years outside of that. Um, so 20, 2013, I was 22, a ball of energy, and I just became a teacher in West Inglewood here in Chicago. I can see 
Some of you guys are doing math. I'm 30. It would take the rest of you, or the rest of the sermon to do that math, so I'll just tell you. Um, so I come in as a teacher here in West Inglewood with these grand, self-important, white savior complex visions of changing kids' lives, right? And don't get me wrong, my wife's a teacher. I think teachers change kids' lives. But I had a very big view of myself and what I was going to do um, in this school. And by March, that view had been completely crushed. And I was overwhelmed with the realities of living in a racialized society. I began to question where God was in the midst of the brokenness of our city. And it was painful. Jamie, my wife, told me that I, that year I was not myself. And I was wrestling with this idea that it was, I was experiencing the hardest year of my life being awakened to the realities of our city and of our nation. Becoming aware of our reality was devastating. See, the entire year, I questioned God's goodness so much that I fell into the temptation that often follows close behind. I need to take things into my own hands apart from God. See, if he's not going to do it, I'm going to, right? Now, I don't have particularly comforting words for those of you who are in this season right now. Like, we are in the midst of a global pandemic, of racism still persisting, of things in Afghanistan and Haiti. Like, brokenness is on display in our world, right? But two things did help me get through this period, and, and two things continue to help me wrestle with this now, because I still have these questions sometimes of, is God good? The first one was that I began to realize my hands weren't big enough to take everything into them, right? I could not take things into my own hands. I traded the true living God for another one, myself, but that God was neither big nor strong enough, right? And the second thing was the Word, was the Bible, particularly for me, the book of Habakkuk. Now, I don't have time to move through Habakkuk this morning. I wish I did. But listening, listen to what Habakkuk says to close out the book. Now, Habakkuk just experienced that he does not know if God is good or not, right? And then God speaks directly to him, and this is how Habakkuk closes. He says, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and not cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. See, brokenness is nothing new, right? Habakkuk, thousands of years ago, experienced brokenness. And yet, he could continue to rely on God knowing he was good. That was my prayer in that season, in this season, over and over and over. Lord, we do not see justice in the land, but I will be joyful in you. Not a cheap, smile-through-the-pain happiness, right? But a joy knowing my God is my Savior. And I'll continue to fight for justice, but with you, not in spite of you. The third lie about God and the second lie we see from this uh, passage was that God is also not worth it. So not only is God not good, but he's not worth it. Remember, he says, God doesn't want you to eat from the tree because he doesn't want you to be like him, right? And you would leave him behind. In other words, the fruit, like what comes of the fruit is greater than what comes of a relationship with God. So I want to tell you guys a story about my cousin, uh, my cousin, actually, who's around my age, has a kid named Connor. So I'll tell you a story about Connor. Connor's about eight years old uh, and a bit of a wild card. We have a joint Christmas every year, 
And every year I'm excited to see what Connor is going to get into, right? Well, a few Christmases ago, Connor gets this big present almost the size of him. And he is so pumped to get this present. And so we come to the uh, present opening time, and he rips through the box. He pulls out this enormous dump truck. Uh, I've decided that, like, boys love, like, two things. It's either trucks or dinosaurs, right? Well, he's a truck guy. So he pulls out this enormous truck. He sets it directly to the side, and then he slides the box over himself, and then he just takes off running with the box, right? And for, like, the next hour and a half, all Connor does is play with the box. He, like, sits in the box. He, like, is like, someone roll me in the box, right? Like, he does all of these things with the box. Now, Connor's grandparents are a little disappointed because last year, someone got the same exact truck. And Connor loved the truck and played with it the whole time, probably because it wasn't his, right? And that's just how we are. But Connor loved that truck. And so then Connor gets the truck, and he plays with the box, so, so then my, gran- uh, my uncle, who's his grandpa, Uncle Troy, decides that he's going to take things into his own hands. Now, I should tell you at this point, Uncle Troy is a big man. He's probably pushing 300. And he goes, Connor, it is my turn to play with a box. Can I play with the box with you? And Connor's pumped, loves his grandpa, right? And he's like, Papa, yeah, come play with the box. So Uncle Troy gets up, sets the box on the ground face up, turns around, and falls into the box. Yeah, yeah. You already know what happened. It's smashed, right? Like the box is completely obliterated. Cotter looks at the box, looks at us around the room, and then just screams, cries for the next 20 minutes, right? You see, Connor completely missed out on the present that his parents gave him because it was all too easy satis- easily satisfied to play with the box. And if I'm being honest, I don't think I'm too different sometimes, right? I am so often captivated by things of this earth that are good things that I miss out on the great thing, a relationship with God. So if the lie that God is that God is not worth it, the temptation is to find life elsewhere. And often the things we seek to find life in are not inherently bad, right? Maybe it's your marriage, kids, your job. But when good things are made ultimate, we will never experience life. We were made for the truck, and we play with the box. All right, so that is uh, some common, those are some common lies about God, right? Let's move to others. Next area is the enemy lies about others. Now, to look at this, we're going to look at the progression of Peter. Now, many of you may know who Peter is, know the story well, right? His progression was, he was one of Jesus' closest friends, he then denies Jesus at the cross, and then he becomes the father of the church, right? Like, not, no big deal. Um, but there's another progression that Peter grows through, goes through that we don't often talk about because it's a lot messier. It's not this, like, triumphal story of Peter going from denying Jesus to, like, preaching to thousands of people and leading them to Christ, right? It's Peter's progression in his feelings toward the Gentiles or non-Jewish people. So Peter, a Jew, becomes a Christian, but he decided to only preach to the Jews at that time. He was previously Jewish, like I said, so it made sense. However, in Acts 10, we see an interaction with God that changes everything for Peter. In the passage, Peter's starving, and he falls into a bit of a trance. During this, he has a dream that God presents to him a bunch of animals that would have been considered unclean at the time to eat, right? So, 
God is like, here, Peter, eat of any of these animals. And Peter tells God he has never eaten any, anything unclean. So why would he now, right? God then says, what God has made clean, do not call unclean. Now, Peter is confused by this. He's like, what does this have anything to do with anything, God? I'm still hungry. Like, what do you want me to do here? And then Peter meets a man named Cornelius, who's a Gentile man. Cornelius asks Peter to come to his home, to come to his home, and Peter reluctantly agrees, realizing what the Lord is teaching him in the moment, right? But of course, Peter being still a little bit slow to um, align himself with God, says this as he arrives to Cornelius' home, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. You guys kind of see what Peter's saying, like, I don't want to be here, but God said I have to be here, right? You ever think about if someone walked into your house and said that, like a friend? You're like, cool, you want water? You know, like, thanks. Um, But God still uses Peter in that moment, even in his uh, unwillingness to align with God. Peter ends up leading Cornelius and his household to Jesus, and the Gentile church begins to spread. Great growth of story, right? Like, Peter decides to follow God, and it, and it works out for him. Well, we get to see what Peter's growth looks like a little bit later. In Galatians 2, Paul highlights a correcting Peter uh, of Peter he had to do. It says this, For before certain men came from James, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision party or the Jewish people. The other Jews joined him in the, his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. So you guys see what happening, is happening? So this is post-Acts 10, that vision. Peter, when no one else was around, would spend time with the Gentile people ministering to them. Then other people uh, who were also Jewish would show up, and Peter's like, oh, I, I don't know them, you know. He had taken God's message but he was not fully rid of believing the lie of Jewish superiority, right? Even if he would spend time with the Gentiles generally, the fact that he would separate himself for fear of how he would be seen showed that he continued to perpetuate that lie, that he was superior to the Gentiles. So you may begin to see how this relates to our context, right? But I think the milk toast sermon, like the easy thing to, to say here would be like unity and diversity, which I think is a great thing, don't get me wrong, but I don't think I have to convince this church of not being segregationists, right? I I don't necessarily see us as a church who would be sitting with people of a different ethnic background and then moving when other people showed up, right? But that does not, just because we're not segregationists does not mean the lie of white supremacy is not, in particular ways, enticing to us. So I want to look at the lie of white supremacy for a minute. And I think it's quite obvious how white supremacy is a lie, right? Let's look at what Duke Kwan and Gregory Thompson in their book Reparations say. They say, American white supremacy is rooted in and sustained by an account of the world, a cherished collection of myths about the nature of humanity, the character of society, and the obligations of morality, whose purpose is to normalize the political and cultural supremacy of white Americans. And yet, this account is, in fundamental respects, a lie. As with all lies, it obscures the reality and leads all who believe it in the dark. 
This is what we mean when we say that white supremacy is the theft of truth. So clearly white supremacy is a lie, right? We were all made in the image of God. So to say or believe one is superior based on the social construct of race is clearly a, a lie. So what is our temptation in this? I wanted to highlight this idea because I think it highlights a principle of temptation that we don't often think about. You do not need to overtly believe the lie that you're being tempted by in order to continue to perpetuate the lie. I lost where I was, sorry. In other words, just because I don't believe a lie doesn't mean I don't sometimes give it legs to stand on, right? So then I believe one of the big, I believe one of the biggest temptations when it comes to white supremacy is that I don't need to care or I'm not the problem. Now, many of you would agree with this, I think, in word, but what about in deed? I know many of us maybe believe about uh, or, or talk about the right things when it comes to race and ethnicity and can even articulate good, wa- good ways uh, these lies that come with white supremacy. But when does our reading and our ability to spout out agreeable points get in the way of us looking internal and seeing ways in which we uh, continue to perpetuate the lie of white supremacy. Let me give you an example. So I, for a long, long time, thought I was doing the work of justice. I spent times at places that were doing the work of justice, and so it must have been justice by association for me, right? I was here in our church, I was reading the right books, I was saying the right things, so I must be doing the right things. But that wasn't church, or that wasn't true. By coming to the church, by saying the right things, became performative justice, which is just that, a performance, right? When the curtain went down, so did my justice. So where is your caring about fighting the lie of white supremacy just in word? Where is it performative? Because that allows the lie of white supremacy to continue, to continue to attempt and continue to deceive. Okay, so final area. So we've talked about God, other people, and now ourselves. I don't know if you've thought about this before, but the person that talks to you the most is you, right? Like, let's be honest, even if it's not out loud, like, my, a lot of mine is out loud, right? But that's also at home. In public, I, I do it all internally, right? Self-talk, thought life, however you want to call it, the person that talks to you the most is you. So as a result, I'll be honest, the person that lies to you the most is you, right? So our thought life is vitally important for our relationship with God. And I believe moment by moment, we are making very moral judgments about ourselves, which apart from the God, or from the gospel is exhausting, right? So I want to look at two lies we often tell ourselves or believe from the enemy. Lie number one, I'm good enough. You know, when I worked in ministry with crew, the students that I worried about the most were not the ones that came from messy backgrounds, right? They were not the ones who grew up partying, doing all these things, and then came to Jesus, right? They often knew how how far they fell short of God, right? It was the kids who grew up in Christian families and did all the right things that I worried about. Because this lie, I'm good enough, was, was what sort of like made their lives move, right? And I think this lie leads to two temptations, legalism or licentiousness, right? Either you believe you can earn your way to God because you've done so well uh, over the, the years, so you work really hard to do all the right things. 
but you don't cultivate a relationship with God. You cultivate a view of yourself. And then there's licentiousness. You, like I said, in comparison to others, are a pretty good person, so it's okay to do whatever you want, right? Grace abounds. If, you're, if you find yourself believing this often, this is going to sound harsh, but you are in desperate need of others in your lives. You need people to call out sin in your life, right? I don't need to go super deep into this example, but if you have some time, read about R. Kelly pre his fallout and his uh, sexual abuse, right? He had friends who would enable him, not call him out in who he was, right? He was seeking power, and so things like he would play basketball games with his friends, and they would just let him win, right? If you have friends that just let you win, you might need new friends, right? Not friends who beat you down all the time either, just to be clear. Because when we do that, we're blinded by the reflection of you that you've created, and we don't have a grace graduate in the room, right? We all need help. Again, when I worked in college ministry, at the end of the year, I would write a vision plan for all of my students. Areas they thrived in, areas they needed to develop, uh, ways in which God could work in their lives in the future, right? And in the areas to develop, I always led with grace, making the students aware that I love them, that God loved them, and I tried to be really gentle with this feedback because it can really spiral for certain people, myself included, right? Again, sensitive. I never regretted this approach unless pride was the top area to develop. Pride pushes us to gatekeep what a good Christian looks like, and we keep a lot more people from seeing Jesus than we do introducing people to Jesus. All right, so that's the first lie. I'm good enough. Second lie, I'm not good enough. Now, you're probably thinking to yourself, Jimmy, it has to be one or the other, right? Either we're good enough or we're not. And I think this, this idea, this idea of not being good enough is, is true to a degree, right? Like we all fall short of the glory of God, the wages of sin is death, and we can do nothing to earn our way back to God. But a partial truth is still a lie. Who paid for that separation for us, Right? We were not good enough, but we have been made good enough through Jesus. See, when you, when you decide to follow Jesus, God sees us as he sees Jesus, as his beloved daughters and sons with whom he is well pleased. So why is this lie dangerous? What's the temptation here? It leads us into shame and hiding. When I was a new Christian in uh, early high school, I didn't grow up in a Christian family, I was terrified of messing things up with God. See, originally I'd understood that I could only get to Jesus through grace, right? That it was only by his free gift. But as I was messing more things up with God, as I became more aware, more aware of my sin, I was not preaching the gospel to myself daily. I began to roller coaster in my relationship with God. When things were good, I loved God. When things were bad, I hid from God. And shame has a bit of a cyclical nature to it that keeps you in shame. I sin. I become aware of my sin, I resort to shame, I feel bad, I want to feel better, so I sin to feel better, I become aware of my sin, I resort to shame. You guys see the cyclical nature of it? So how do we break that cycle of shame? Well, let's go back to the beginning, to our passage in Genesis 3. You see, when even Adam ate the apple, they sinned against God. And then there's this really weird part in Genesis 3 that I was always confused about for a long time. 
They become aware that they're naked, right? And they become ashamed of being naked. And then this happens. Let's look at the passage. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid, right? They run from God, the one person that can help them, and I do the same thing. Now, this is, of course, where Adam and Eve are about to leave the garden because of their sin. God, being a perfect God, cannot be in the presence of sin, right? But before Adam and Eve leave, they're still naked, there's this part that I think we skip over so often or we misunderstand that I want to hit on. God sets the precedent for sin. Look at Genesis 3:21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So I think often we read this and are like, that's nice. God provided a provision for Adam and Eve so that they are no longer naked. And that's true, right? He takes care of us. He takes care of the root of their shame. But have we ever considered the cost of God doing this? It says that God made garments of skin meaning an animal sacrifice was made in order to make up for the shame that Adam and Eve experienced because of their sin, right? God was setting the precedent that the wages of sin is death. And so something or someone has to pay the price for forgiveness, right? Something or someone has to die in order to cover our shame. God was setting the stage for Jesus to lay down his life for our sin from the beginning. Let me clarify. I think when we experience a shame, our resort is to puff ourselves up and be like, it's, I'm not that bad, I'm a good person, right? But eventually you fail yourself again and you go straight back into that shame. That doesn't work. Just like the animal skins cover their nakedness, we need Jesus to cover our shame, right? So to wrap up, um, I've thrown a lot of common lies at you. And without much direction as to where to go with these lies, you're like, cool, these are the lies, now what, right? Uh, We talked a little bit about the shame, but what about the other ones? So this is how I want to end. I want us to consider what does it look like for us to pray the prayer and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Like practically, how can that play out in our lives? Now some of you guys are going to be mad at me because the answer is the Sunday school answer, Jesus, right? We already began to hit on it with shame, but Jesus is the response to these lies. In what ways? Luke 4 tells us of the temptation Jesus endured. He said, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left for Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. So Jesus, fully human and fully God, was tempted as we were, right? So what does the Bible then say about this temptation? Like, what does this mean for us? Well, Hebrews 4 then puts it very, very plainly. Speaking of Jesus, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but one who has in every way been tempted as we are. Yet he is without sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of needs. So you guys see this? There's two aspects of Jesus being tempted that speaks directly to us. The first one is that Jesus understands us. He's able to empathize with our weaknesses. You guys like understand the gravity of that, that God gets us, right? He, he has experienced what we have experienced, um, and so he understands what we're experiencing. 
But I don't think it's that, uh, just that. I think it's a lot more than that. He does not leave us to our own devices and our temptation. The passage says that when we are tempted, we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need, right? Now, I think if we're not careful, that is like the perfect Hobby Lobby pillow, right? Like, we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. It's like a very churchy way to say things. And so you just throw it on a pillow and you're like, look, God helps us in our time of need, right? But this is a profoundly deep statement. And if we miss it, I think we're just going to treat it like another pillow, throw pillow in our lives, right? So what does it look like for us to receive mercy and grace? Again, I think it goes back to Jesus' time in the wilderness when he says he was full of the Holy Spirit. So often, I think we think that God has saved us and now we have to live the Christian lives ourselves, right? You guys know we have a helper though, right? One who being a part of the Godhead allows us to experience obedience over temptation and to walk in a way worthy of the gospel to which we have been called. See, the story is not written once we have experienced that temptation. The story is then written, how do we respond in that temptation, right? The Spirit is our only hope to be being delivered from our temptation. So listen when I say this. The gospel is not that we have been saved from the penalty of sin and left to our own devices, right? We are not justified and then sent out to the world to figure it out, right? The gospel is that we have been saved from the penalty of sin. We now have power over sin, and one day we will be freed from the presence of sin altogether. That's the good news. God upholds both ends of the bargain. He saves us. He helps us to be obedient. He is our only hope. So what does this look like practically, right? I I said I would say that, and this is how I'm going to end. A couple of years ago, I spent three months, I would write down every time I had a negative feeling, right? And I don't think negative feelings are always indicative of our temptations, but I just wanted to see, like, why is it that I'm experiencing these negative feelings? So I'd write down what happened, and then I began to look at those negative feelings and parse through, like, what were the temptations for me, and when was I disappointed in myself? When was I disappointed in how I was experiencing life? Things like that. And I began to see my common lies that I would believe, right? That everyone has to like me. Uh, That particularly authority has to like me. And so I would take that and I would say, okay, how does Jesus speak to this area of my life? And I wrote it on a note card. And I wrote out a prayer, Lord, I know that like I am beloved by you. I I experience your grace. You're the one um, whose idea of me, view of me is what is important right? And so I would encourage you to consider, like, what are the lies that you believe in your, in your life, the lies that bring you away from God, uh, a view of a God who loves you and who knows you? And how does Jesus speak to that directly, right? And so this is what we're going to do. I'm going to welcome up the band. We're just going to give you a minute. They're going to play some music. Uh, and I would just encourage you to sit there for a minute. This is not enough time to figure out your whole life. Um, I know that. But Just pray, like, God, what are the lies in my life? Is it something that Jimmy brought up, or is it something else that makes me view God, other people, or myself as you did not intend? You guys with me? So we're going to do that. Uh, A few of us will be in the back here. If you want prayer for that lie in your life, if you want help fighting that, we pray together. All right? All right. Go ahead and take a minute to pray to yourselves.